Welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Thomas Ridd. Uh, Thomas is a professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. And I asked Tom to appear on the podcast to talk about his new book, Rise of the Machines, which is just out. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, what is the Department of War Studies at King's College London? Oh, the Department of War Studies is probably the biggest um, international relations and history department that is exclusively focused on conflict and war. And we're huge. We're about 70 to 90 people teaching there full time. Wow. Yeah. And you're also very well known for uh, your uh, attribution paper, attribution, uh, attributing cyber, cyber attacks. And I want to start there. Okay. Uh, do you find that we are getting better at attribution? Because uh, a lot of the attribution that I hear in my circles is, is behind the scenes. It's not necessarily public. But I yeah. want to discuss public attribution. You know, there's, there, was always, there was the Sony thing that caused a lot of controversy. There's yes. also, you know, we, we've seen that being linked to something else recently where, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the formula isn't well known. Uh, when you look at how attribution is handled at a public level, publicly, do you find yeah. that we're getting better at it or, or, or is there still a lot of work to be done? Yeah, so that's, I think that you put your finger right um, on the most interesting question, namely that gap between what's happening be- behind closed doors, both in the intelligence community in different countries, also in industry in different countries, and what's happening in public. And I think we, over the past 20 years, really, since we started, the, since we saw the first APT um, in the late 1990s, that gap has been slowly narrowing, but it's still quite significant, it seems to me. Um, but I think it's quite significant, for instance, recently, the German uh, intelligence uh, community, especially the internal intelligence service in Germany, the um, uh, BFV, um, essentially the German equivalent to MI5, they have become, they were quite vocal in pointing out explicitly naming, in this case, particular Russian, uh, parts of the Russian government, um, which is really remarkable. Um, so, and I think the the important thing for me as a scholar is that we are now in a position to discuss some of these attribution cases publicly and to begin to have that conversation about what kind of evidence and what kind of forensic data is of high quality and what kind of evidence is of low quality, if you see what I mean. Right, but are we getting, do you, do you think we're getting better at it, say, over the last five years? Yes. I mean, you know, Kaspersky played an important role. You published a lot of very solid, uh, rich in terms of detail reports on attribution. But Kaspersky also seems to have that philosophy that they don't want to go all the way and only analyze specific operations and malware and, you know, infrastructure and whatnot, but not... uh, actually point to specific individuals or organizations? Well, it's a simple philosophy. It's very, very difficult to get it absolutely right, and it's very, very easy to get it absolutely wrong. And, yeah. Uh, and I think, I think the policy is, let's just put the data out there uh, and let people draw their own conclusions. And if your yeah. data is rich enough and your research is, is good enough, uh, you know, the, the pointers are always going to be there. Yeah. But I think it's also important, you know, to, to, to just 
state that on the record that if some governments put their resources, their skills, and their access um, and intelligence, um, you know, community to on a specific case, they may be able to come up with evidence that is beyond the reach of even an extremely impressive company like Kaspersky in this space. So, for instance, we have seen in the Snowden in the Snowden material one operation was revealed where the NSA uh, breached. Uh, a Chinese ISP uh, went into the customer records and matched specific uh, IP addresses, you know, used at a specific point in time to a specific user account that was taking advantage of that, uh, of these uh, IP addresses that were used for a specific breach. And th so they got the mailing address, and it was the mailing address of the 3PLA um, intelligence branch of the PLA. That's pretty impressive attribution. Right, and I think uh, I think the, the the seminal Mandiant report on APT one uh, was was some fantastic work as well. I mean, it, but it, you know, it's yeah. The researchers will tell you it's really really easy to get a lot of things wrong with misdirection, a lot of code reuse uh, from other attacks and so on. So it's not a, it's it's never cut and dried, and I guess that's you know one of the reasons you produce that paper, yeah. providing some guidance. You know, it was interesting when when we did our attribution report, and you know. We also had a, a really productive session with um, with Costin um, and and the great team in Barcelona at the time. When the report was published, uh, our study, um, the interestingly, the Chinese uh, 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 security community picked it up, and I was invited to come to Beijing to present the paper at a PLA workshop. Um, and um, did you go? One of yeah, of course, yeah. Oh. yeah. How did that go? Um, that was interesting. They were <laughs> quite shy, believe it or not. Interesting. <laughs> and there, yes, there were not a lot of foreigners. Um, and um, But one of the things that I said is, uh, you know, I'm not very good in reading Chinese cultural nuances, as you would imagine, because um, I don't speak the language. But uh, one of the things I said is, you know, for one per if there's an attribution report, there's always one party for which the situation is very clear. There's no doubt. Everything is you know either either right or wrong, and that's the the one that got caught. Um, and so I said, the NSA has that experience of getting caught, and they therefore know that attribution works. Um, and it was just interesting to see the reaction in the room. I saw a few smiles and a few kind of, you know, people reacting to the joke in a way that you would expect. <laughs> That's really, really funny. Uh, I, I, want, I want to go back a little bit. Your, your book, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, came out after Stuxnet, which was somewhat regarded as uh, the first public confirmation of cyber war. So obviously I'll have to ask you to define uh, and I know the book is not a, a literal cyber war will not take place, but uh, how do you define cyber war? And how does something like Stuxnet and some of the other things we've seen around uh, malware being used in uh, conflict uh, yeah. fit into that definition? Yeah. Um, you know, I was so naive when I wrote this book, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, um, because I thought, like, let's, just, let's just take that funny idea of cyber war and push it to the side and have a more 
interesting and more nuanced and more technical conversation about what's actually going on. But of course, that's the exact opposite happened. So I've completely and utterly failed with that book, if you, if you like. because <laughs> You think <it's>, so? <laughs> I mean, it fanned the flames of this rather boring cyber war discussion. Uh, uh, but d d was the book written uh, uh, prior to or during or after your work on Moonlight Maze? Uh, completely before my work on Moonlight Maze. The, so we're talking about my previous book, The uh, uh, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, you mean? Yes. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I knew of Moonlight Maze, but I hadn't done any You, you didn't start digging yet. So no. how, okay, today with hindsight, everything you know now, everything yeah. that's public, everything you know privately, how do you define cyber war today? Because it's, there's still a lot of you know, angst about how people uh, define what a cyber war is. I, I, saw, I saw a report recently where uh, the U.S. military is now officially declaring cyber as a military domain. Yeah. Uh, I, I listened to a talk from General Hayden uh, prior to his retirement where he talked about coming into uh, the NSA and, and his, the way he understood, the way he processed cyber in his mind was as a domain. Yes, um, yeah. Yeah, there's great appeal to thinking about cyber as a domain. But let's, so when it's important to look at, I'm, I don't like to define cyber war because who am I? I'm just an academic. Who cares how I define cyber war? Yeah, but that's what academics do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but let's look at the history. It's actually really more interesting. You know, I think it's, it's more useful if you want definitions. I think it's more useful to talk about uh, sabotage, operations that either delete or modify data or even affect um, physical systems, physical things, uh, sabotage on the one hand or intelligence operations, espionage operations that just take out um, or rather copy data out of the target environment. This is a useful distinction, I think, um, if, if you want definitions. Uh, more useful no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm curious for your your thinking on on how because I mean sabotage or 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 any any sort of subterfuge uh, at at a network let's call it cyber level yeah uh, you know is it could be a significant operation within a larger conflict yeah uh, and I'm just curious yeah. for, for your thinking of, of how 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 should we view the term cyber war yeah so let me let me maybe say something that's in my new book, Rise of the Machines. Mm -hmm. So if you take the, the idea, this idea of cyber war, and you, know, you may find it interesting that uh, the word cyber war came up even before people were talking about cyberspace. So cyber war is, is a really old idea and initially didn't actually mean hacking things or you know, breaching um, a computer ne um, a network. It initially meant what we today would call automation on the battlefield or just a revolution in military affair, uh, affairs. That's a military jargon term. Right. Um, so initially, when people started about talking about um, this new kind of information warfare and cyber war, there, there was something happened that happened for the past 70 years, and that is that two things happened at the same time. The utopian, the optimistic reading of cyber war, and the pessimistic, the dystopian reading, reading of cyber war em emerged almost immediately. 
the optimism came first and then the pessimism came in slightly later. The optimism was we can now win war before the shooting even starts. We can completely subdue an enemy just by by attacking their information infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, or slightly later during the Gulf War, this idea of an electronic Pearl Harbor emerged, which was exactly the mirror image. The idea was that somebody else could um, you know, exploit vulnerabilities in a highly technological uh, society and bring everything to a halt. And both were, of course, completely exaggerated. And my feeling is that and when we use the word cyber war, we sort of fall back into this exaggeration that, you know, for the past 70 years, if you, if you like, since we started sloshing around that idea, cyber, which comes from cybernetics, mm-hmm. that extreme view is just counterproductive. I prefer the nuanced middle ground. Absolutely. And this is why I, I think Stuxnet came into uh, the argument as the first public act of cyber war because you know we can we can view that now as having uh, done some things that led to the to the nuclear agreement down the road yeah. um, you know it was it was an, it was you know part of an op- it was a, a, a small part of an operation that led to something significant down the road that avoided uh, physical yeah. physical conflict well, you know, there were other things as well that played a very significant role. Um, it's just that the technology community has a bit of a tunnel perspective. They see Stuxnet and think that was the most important um, event. But, you know, we have seen very significant diplomatic initiatives, um, sanctions especially that had a huge effect. We've seen assassinations of nuclear scientists and others in Iran, covert operations. Right, so it, was a, it's, it yeah. was a small part. I mean, if the reports are to be believed, it it significantly slowed down certain things happening there. Yeah, uh, you know that led to this. So it's 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 really interesting to see how, uh, in my world, the, just the, the the word malware, how malware fits into something so, uh, yeah. you know, interesting on a geopolitical level. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean Stuxnet. You know, Stuxnet. In some ways, it depends. You can use it for so many different things to make so many different arguments. For instance, you can extract an argument from Stuxnet that runs counter to many of the cyber war fears out there. You can see, okay, Stuxnet, let's just tease out, you know, a few quick bullet points. Mm -hmm. One, it's really old. I mean, it started, its development started 10 years ago, in in 2006, apparently. Um, it's it's very slow. It's not just old, it's also slow. It was in operation for a very long time. It evolved during its um, its deployment, um, the different versions. It involved a lot of labor. It was you know very labor-intensive and development-intensive. It involved multiple teams working on different parts of the entire packet, you know, the spreading mechanism, the payload, the ICS, the ODAs that were built into Stuxnet and whatnot. So it's not just, uh, a lot of people think you can just do this very quickly and very cheaply, and perhaps even a kid in some garage could do it. Well, Stuxnet proves that's all not actually correct. Mm-hmm. I know, it, it, it's just a, a fascinating story, and I don't think the entire story is, uh, has been told yet. Uh, yeah. a switch gear for, switching gears for a little bit, U.S.-China uh, uh, 
uh, stop hacking agreement. Has that changed anything? I mean, that's an interesting one because I feel, I feel, I feel it's very difficult to assess for me from a, from an outsider's perspective. I hear rumors that it may make a difference. There are those people who think that she, uh, the Xi administration, really tries to st- is trying to rein in um, the rogue parts of the PLA and the, and MSS, and that that they're succeeding to a degree. But I find it very difficult to assess. Um, I saw. Way. I don't know if you saw this. I saw a public statement from FireEye. Uh, mm. that the agreement is affecting their bottom line negatively. Yeah. So there's yes. that. Yes. And I, I, wanna, I, I got some bullet point things I wanted to uh, pick your brain with quickly before we get into a quick chat on the book and Moonlight yes. Maze and the connection to Moonlight Maze. Where are you on the crypto debate, this whole Apple FBI thing? Oh, the Apple FBI thing? Yes. Um, <laughs> how, do you, how, do you draw the, how do you draw the line and find a balance between what law enforcement needs to access to keep a society safe versus yeah. the expectation of privacy uh, yeah. for, the, for the consumer. Yeah. Well, you know, we just did this, uh, you may have seen, we did a study with my amazing PhD student, um, Daniel Moore, on uh, crypto policy and, and the darknet, and he crawled um, uh, a significant amount of hidden services. And the argument that we make there is that most crypto systems that, that, that we use every day are just a fact of life and they're a good thing. That includes end-to-end encryption in most of its forms. And I think the line is, is difficult to draw at this point. In fact, this is probably going to be my next book project. But I think the way hidden services, torrent services and other darknet uh, architectures are currently implemented, that seems to incentivize abuse uh, more than legitimate use. Mm -hmm. So there I think we can have a legitimate discussion about whether we have crossed some sort of line. But we're only in the beginning of that discussion, I think. Well, you know, there's a court case going on. Mozilla just filed a court brief asking a court to have the FBI disclose the zero-day in TOR that they used to expose some uh, folks on Darknet. It was denied um, yeah. uh, so the FBI is holding on to zero day, claiming they have a legitimate reason to go after, you know, child predators and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, purveyors of child pornography and so on. So it's 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 really, really, uh, it's not a straightforward case. Uh, and no. the Apple FBI case, I mean, you, you can make a solid, significant argument on both sides of the divide. Absolutely, you can. But I would also say, you know, the way the, way the Tor developer community has steered and, and, and developed Tor hidden services, it's not Tor browsing, but Tor hidden services especially, there are no mechanisms in place to limit abuse um, in contrast to many other platforms. Why are we not even having a discussion about coming up with mecha- mechanisms to limit abuse, given that abuse is rife there? So considering that they're not doing this, I think it's a completely legitimate target. Tor is it technologically services. possible? I mean, if you look again at history, the Tor com- developer community had that discussion internally. And um, I, th- I think Ro- Roger Dingledine is on the record saying that they will come, uh, they will develop ways to limit abuse, like 
reputation systems, for instance, are one imaginable, like, uh, you know, internal reviews flagging up users that abuse, uh, that abuse the system. They've never delivered on that promise. Are you an optimist? Are you optimistic that these these very vexing questions uh, will eventually get answers? Or are you like me, uh, you know, I think five to ten years from now, things will be progressively worse? We, uh, um, yeah. No, I'm actually probably not an optimist. I'm, I'm quite, sometimes I'm quite frustrated and disappointed by the low quality of the debate on not all technical questions, but especially on crypt, on crypto. Um, the, people start screaming at each other as, as soon as somebody drops the term backdoor, the right. discussion is over. And there's no nuance to the discussion at all? No. Uh, Moonlight Maze. You've done significant work on Moonlight Maze. Uh, a little bit of a history lesson here. This is the 1998 uh, cyber attacks against U.S. government networks. Uh, you did a talk for us at SAS, one of my favorite talks at SAS. The video is available online for, for the listeners to check into it. Thank you. Is there anything on Moonlight Maze that we don't know today? Oh, yes, there's a lot that we don't know. Um, is there anything that we don't know that you can tell us today? Um, I'm working I'm working on it actually with one of your colleagues Um, there's some more research to come out but I think it's a bit too early to to make uh, bold claims Um, are there any are there any are there any historical lessons from Moonlight Maze that we can use today to guide uh, what we will see uh, around uh, cyber operations going forward Uh, uh, yeah yeah. Well, I think, it, if anything, what I found surprising is that so many of the features that we see today, um, that cat and mouse game that's constantly going on, you know, the operational security of the intruder trying to be better than the attributive, attributive capabilities of the um, investigating side on the victim side, that, that's been going on during Moonlight Maze for a long time. Um, so, you know, Moonlight Maze started probably sometime in late 1996 already. Uh, the code name was only coined in 1998, and then it continued for a long time. It, it didn't really stop, but it evolved into, into something else. And right, the talent, it's safe to assume the talent there never went away. They just, yeah. you know, would have morphed into something else. And on both sides, I mean, uh, we, we had equation, and yeah. it's safe to assume the talent that went into that operation never went away either. Absolutely, yes. I have a question. How much, uh, if you were to guess, and I know this is not uh, something academics like to do, but if you were to guess um, uh, how many of these real, real big Moonlight Maze, uh, uh, Stuxnet, equation-type operations we don't know about, uh, the ones we know about, do you think it's just a, a small percentage of what's actually happening versus... Uh, we, we, what kind of visibility do you think we, the public, uh, we, the outsiders, have into the yeah. the overall picture of what's happening? That's a very difficult question. Um, I I would be very reluctant to guess to hazard a guess there, but certainly there's a lot more going on than we than we realize. But then, on the other hand, also. Um, you know, there's a huge distinction between what the public knows about and what some people with good visibility know about. Uh, I think it is very difficult today in this day and age to hide, completely hide, a very large a uh, campaign like, like Moonlight Maze was 
uh, completely from from detection. Um, so I think, you know, do we know everything? No, but is uh, uh, if you if we look at some of the revelations in the Snowden leaks, there are a couple of fascinating files, especially leaked by uh, the Canadian by Canadian intelligence or Canadian files uh, leaked through Snowden. Some of them list the um, APTs that are known to the NSA um, as of a couple as of a couple of years ago. They have pretty impressive visibility, I think. So, if you take that as a as a measure and what we publicly know about, then I don't know. Uh, do we know of five percent, ten percent, something yeah. like that? It's really interesting. Uh, do you think the anti malware industry? Uh, and I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to segment it into antivirus and a whole debate about antivirus being dead and useless. But do you think the anti-malware industry as a whole has done a good enough job of protecting uh, uh, high-value networks from uh, nation-state-type cyber attacks? Hmm. I, I, I know it's kind of an open-ended question and it's, 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 it's a difficult thing to do, but I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. asking the question because this is kind of part of the public chatter yeah, and there's a lot. There are a lot of people flagellating themselves and saying we're not doing a good enough job protecting sense high value networks. Right, right, right. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that might have to do with the fact that not everything that is detected or seen uh, uh, sees the light of day uh, gets publicly announced. So, yes, uh, there's that whole thing. There. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think. I don't. I'm reluctant to sort of, you know, point fingers or name names in this in response to your question. It's a great question, but I'm not sure I'm the right person to assess the quality of others' work here. Rise of the Machines uh, is 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 it a history book? How would you describe the book? Yeah, it's a history of an idea. So it started off. I started off asking where does cyber, you know, whatever it means, where does it come from? Um, because I'm I was a bit tired by that quasi-philosophical discussion about definitions and instead was saying, okay, so let's look at history. Let's look at how the idea emerged and what we did with it. And it turns out to be an amazing, fascinating story about human-machine interaction, human-computer and human-network interaction. So that's what the book is doing. You write that the Pentagon and the FBI were somewhat surprised by Moonlight Maze. Uh, why do you think they were surprised? I mean, we, we have evidence of, uh, of attacks predating that. Yeah. So um, just, just, just very briefly for context, so mm-hmm. the Moonlight Maze story is only the last, um, the last part of the last chapter in the book. Okay. And the book itself is sort of going way back to the Second World War and it's quite quite a wild story of, of um, you know cybernetic machines that were developed um, during the war already, uh, starting with air defense. But but you know let's not talk about that here because the conversation is nicely focused on some more contem- contemporary questions. Right. I, I just got to wrap up uh, quickly. What is what is next for you? Uh, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, big fan of your your publications. What are you working on next? What can we expect? coming out of you and your and your, your 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 team well i'm thinking about this question a lot right now and and i do think that the crypto uh the crypto discussion cryptography the the politics uh, uh political history of cryptography i think there's a fascinating book to be written 
to try to introduce uh, some depth and nuance into this extremely important debate today. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Thomas. Appreciate the time. Thank you.